1: All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. I have an exciting show for you today. I can't wait to hear this myself. Um, I'm calling the show the name of the book that my guest wrote, uh, which is The Bicycle Diaries, One New Yorker's Journey Through 9-11. Now, I read about this man just uh, over the weekend uh, in the New York Times. There was such a fascinating article about his book. Um, first of all, let me just give you a little background on Richard Goodman, I guess, today. He's the author not only of The Bicycle Diaries book, but also uh, a book called French Dirt, the story of a garden in the south of France, which sounds fabulous. Um, I went to. Uh, I lived in France for three, two and a half years while I was going to medical school, and I've been to the south of France several times. And the soul of creative writing, another book that he has written, and then a newer book called New York Memoir that was published in 2010. But the thing that um, really, I mean, I'm fascinated with everything 9/11. Um, Richard, as you probably don't know, uh, I wrote a book called Coping with Terrorism, Dreams Interrupted, and 9-11 changed my life in the sense that I feel that the best thing that I can do for people um, is to help them, aside from helping them with relationships, which is another hat that I wear, helping them find love, but it's to help them deal with the stress of, the, the ongoing stress of terrorism, as well as the ongoing trauma that we have not gone gotten over from nine eleven, and um, there was something in this New York Times article. Let's see, um, that I here yeah, uh, that I especially liked. Um, Richard rode his bicycle as, as he'll describe in a minute. Um, but the Art of New York Times article says his mode of transportation, he found, got him into areas blocked off to others. When you ride a bicycle, no one thinks you're menacing, he said. It's like a kid's thing. There was this great ability to slither around the city. I love that because it's so true. You know, here you just imagine Manhattan after 9-11 and, and uh, all the fear and so on, uh, and the gloom and everything else, and then... It, Like even though you were a grown man and not a child on a bicycle, that seemed so relatively harmless that people did let you get wherever you wanted to go. So let's start with um, where you well where you were more specifically on 9/11 and how you began to take these bicycle rides.
3: Yeah, sure. I'll tell you. um, 9/11. I was on my way to work and um, I was I worked on Park Avenue around 47th Street, and I crossed Madison, and I saw the one of the towers bellowing smoke and immediately sensed that something awful had happened. But, of course, I wasn't sure, and, and no one else was then either. Um, and when I went to work, uh, everybody knew because it had been on the Internet. and um, So then I just left like everyone else did and went back home. I wanted to make sure my daughter was safe. She was at a school on the Upper West Side, so things were fine. And then, um, after a day of just sitting around in my apartment and not just feeling I wanted to do something, but what you know, what could we do? I, for some reason, uh, jumped on my bicycle and rode down from 103rd Street and Riverside Drive as far south as I could get before the uh, police and the Army stopped me, and then I started doing that every day for about three months, and when I came back i I wrote about what I saw that day and um, sent it off to friends um, all around the country.
2: Mhm
3: and um it it um, was I felt that it was a way for me to feel not that I was doing something, I suppose maybe so just by connecting the people out there. With New York City, I found that people had a great need, um, almost a craving, to to be in some way connected to New York City, and I, I felt that my emails somehow gave them that connection, sort of a reaching out to them. And um, every day I saw something different. It was very hard to get too close to the scene because the police and the Army were still very jittery. They, they, um, they considered it a crime scene. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't know if a week later something else would happen. So um, I had to be very cautious, and bit by bit I got closer and closer. But you're right, the bicycle is a, just a benign thing, and, and you know, they, they, I think it helped me uh, do what I wanted to do.
2: So tell us about some of the things that you saw.
3: Well, that first day, um, which was, I think, the 13th, because the 12th I was just sitting in my apartment trying to figure out what to do watching television. The 13th I set out in the evening, and it was just a gorgeous evening, and I rode down by the Hudson. Um, there's a path, for those of you who don't know this, that, uh, a bicycle and a jogging path that runs down the Hudson River, all the way from the George Washington Bridge down to the southern end of Manhattan. And it was a gorgeous day. And I rode down, and, of course, everything was so strange and different. Um, there weren't any cars. There were only um, ambulances, which actually weren't going anywhere. They were lined up one after another. And that turned out to be an amazing, amazingly sad fact, because the ambulances were never needed. But there they were. They were from mm-hmm. all over the state, from, even from Boston, these one after another. And then I rode down the West Side Highway and sort of made my way through barriers and um, got as far as 14th Street. And wait, me, I could see the smoke bellowing in the distance. Wait,
2: wait. Um, Richard. Yeah. Never needed because why? Sorry? Ne- that the ambulances were never needed because why? Because everyone either had died or survived?
3: Everyone had died. Really, I mean, there were only a few survivors, as you know. And, right. um, um, but no one knew then. It's funny. I was thinking about this earlier today. That you know, we we saw on television, or at least a lot of us did, the towers collapsing. But still, I think no one in really thought that every single person had died, which was to a great extent true. So. All these ambulances came, and they were there waiting, and um, just like um, the hospitals were waiting and, and on call, and nobody came. Mm.
2: Hmm.
3: So that was um, that was something people held on to hope. I remember, you know, it's, it's ten years ago, but I remember. I think after two weeks, you could just feel it. You know, even after a week, I suppose you could just feel the hope kind of disappearing. And everybody realizing uh, as the firemen started digging through this mass, and um, um, that there wasn't anybody there alive. The, I, you know, there were a few sort of miracle things. I remember there was something below the buildings in the subway area. They they rescued three people, but that was just that was extraordinary. That really wasn't what happened for the most part.
2: Yeah, yeah. That, but I can imagine that sight. So go ahead.
3: Well, um, then I I came back and um, I remember, well, that night I remember down at 14th Street, these sirens, these um, police cars and um, um, tow trucks and going by screaming their sirens one after another after another. And then I remember seeing a tow truck coming the opposite way, going north, and behind it it was hauling a police car, which was completely covered in ash, uh, just like the, the the Pompeii sort of thing, and that really struck home um, when I saw that. That was mm. that was amazing. And um, the next day, I went down to the Javits Center, which is an enormous convention center on the west side, around oh, I guess thirty fourth or something like that. Um, and that's where all the people were assembled who were being taken down to the World Trade Center to. Um, through the wreckage to see if they could find anybody. And it was an amazing scene. It was huge, enormous. It was just like a, um, going into the, a Giants football game, thousands and thousands of people. And um, so I went and talked to a number of them. And um, I remember talking to a, um, a highway patrolman from New Jersey. And I said, were you down there? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, what was it like? And he said, I can't describe it. he said, I was walking around in and, and, and a huge glass window nearly cut me in half and he said what am i doing down there me a highway patrolman so um uh... he came back and he was and people were sleeping on the on the sidewalk waiting to be taken down there um they would sl- just sleep on the concrete
2: so were these mostly people who who whose loved ones were missing or were they also i guess and also just volunteers who wanted to try to do something to help
3: Well, at the Javits Center, they were mostly volunteers, and a lot of them were, what they really needed at that point was they needed uh, people who understood machinery, who were adept with electricity, who were adept with plumbing, who could understand the the mechanics of buildings and how, perhaps, to get in, weave their way in, people who um, were skilled workers, mostly, as far as I know, except for firemen and policemen, there weren't any civilians down there doing any of the work, digging through. And they weren't so much people looking for their loved ones. Those people were further south, um, standing near the hospitals or putting up the pictures of their loved ones on on the uh, sides of walls. I remember seeing those. That was one of the most poignant things I I saw was um, uh, a wall full of photographs, like family snapshots of different people of fathers and mothers and sons, and daughters, and they were all in either in their, you know, graduation outfits or on vacation, and then there'd be written below them, this is my dad, if you see him, please call this number, or have you seen this man, if so, call this number, um, and of course, no one ever did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, I kept I kept bicycling, and I would go different places, and I finally got close enough uh, to see the, the site, and I... I it's funny, I saw the, uh, that huge comb-like structure that we saw on television, that one remnant that looked like a giant Alexander Calder uh, sculpture or something. And when I saw that right there, it, it just sent a shiver of fear through me. That thing was so huge. And what it did was it made me realize, again, how enormous the World Trade Center buildings were mm. and how much destruction had taken place. And... Um, they had a big fence around the site and you couldn't go in there but at night it was all lit up eerily by these enormous spotlights mm. and there was a there was a f- fumes coming off of it and smoke bellowing off of it so it was eerie and horrible and strange and you know the smells of plastic and and burnt all these things were coming out of this mass and uh it, it was horrifying um, so I mm, talked. You know, I, I've
2: been to the site. Um, you know, not not right after, but uh, in fact, a, <laughs> I don't remember a couple, two or three years after. hmm And um, and it, of course, and it's still pretty much. Well, we can talk about it, but I mean, there hasn't been that much done to the site. But the thing, it, it is what was shocking to me was just how much of a crater it had left i mean and how how much ground those buildings um uh took up and like what a big footprint and how what caverns they were uh were left there i mean it was it is really like a huge gaping wound
3: yes exactly
2: uh, and wound. i hear uh, <laughs> i hear music that means we need to take a gap in any case Um, my guest today is Richard Goodman his new book is called The Bicycle Diaries One New Yorker's Journey Through 9-11 and we'll be continuing with this um, when we come back you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch and I'm your psychiatrist host Dr. Carol Lieberman
1: check out her book bad boys dr. Carol wants to help you today so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE get help making sense of these troubled times www.drcarol.com
4: are you ready to go green you've asked and we've heard you voice america presents the green talk network
0: Explore the power and beauty in yourself and in others. Tune in to the Stacy Stern Show, Enriching You. Every week, Stacy Stern will connect you with men and women who are living and working from a place of passion. Stacy's guests include successful authors, filmmakers, actors, experts, and leaders. You'll hear what inspires each of them, and you'll be turned on to great films, books, and new media. Tune in to the Stacy Stern Show, Enriching You. Tuesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel.
2: I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about The Bicycle Diaries, One New Yorker's Journey Through 9-11. That's the name of the book that was written by Richard Goodman. It is. We were just talking um, during the break, and he was telling me it's currently in the bindery. By the end of the show, I'll tell you uh, where you can get the limited edition of this book, which is kind of exciting. Um, you know it's it 's funny when when i 'm um, sure for you too it 's like when we start talking about this, um, I feel a totally different mood come over, and my voice sounds different and and I mean you know we have not um, even though both of us have written books about this, we have not gotten past, and maybe that 's exactly the point you know the emotional um, the fact, this is so somber, sobering and sombering. I mean, it's such a, it's such a, uh, it has such an impact ten years
3: later. Yes, I, I, I completely agree with you. And, um the thing is about my main reaction, I think, was as a New Yorker. I, I, it was a very personal reaction. Nobody I knew died, by the way. You should know that. It wasn't, I didn't have any uh, loss in that sense. But, Because I felt it was an attack on my city, it was. I didn't have this national American feeling so much as I had, look what they did to my city, to my city, and um, and so it was very personal kind of reaction. And um, I, I, when you're right, when I start thinking about it now, I, I it becomes very somber. My mood does change. You're absolutely right. And, and I
2: was born and raised in New York, so I feel that it's still my city, too. I guess that's why. Um, and yes, you know, how did they do this to my city? I mean, America, of course, but it is more personal, you know, being New Yorkers.
3: Yes, and, and, you know, about the bicycle, you know, I had ridden. My bicycle all around that area for years and years. I knew the World Trade Center area like the back of my hand. I, uh, so all of that was so familiar to me. And you asked what ha- what I saw down there and what impressed mm-hmm. me. Well, the, one of the first things was I was riding down there on the weekend and I was riding south on Washington or Greenwich, I forget which, t- which are two streets that cut through the village and Tribeca and, and go directly toward the World. And I and I looked up and they were gone. And at that moment I thought to myself, where are they? Where are they? I must be on the wrong street. I must be on the wrong street because of course they're there. Mm. And then I all of a sudden realized they were gone and it was this uh, I it was the cliché came to me which was I can't believe my eyes. And um those sorts of things were happening left and right.
2: Yes, yes. Um things that we sort of took for granted as being uh, on the compass you, you know um, reference points, so go ahead, tell us some more of, of what you saw, so as far as what about the different people who you met what kinds of um, what kinds of reactions were you getting from the people
3: well um, I, I talked to quite a few policemen and firemen. Um, and there were a few fire stations down there, um, that were close enough, so they were hugely affected. Um, of course, over 300 guys died, and, 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 you know, they were all affected, but some more than others. And there was a, a fire station, there was a fire station in Soho on Lafayette Street that I, I dropped by, and, um, they had one boot in front of the station that was bent and rubber fireman's boot and covered in ash. And I remember talking to this fireman. He was sitting on the edge of his fire truck on in the sort of stoop area, or whatever, and uh, looking just kind of melancholy. And and so on the wall it said, "Pray for," and then it had about 14 names: Sean, Bill, Tom, Angie, mm. and it went on and on and on. And I and I looked at him and I said, um, "Oh God, you know the, these guys are, are are missing." And he looked up at me and he said not really missing anymore Hmm. oh god i mean it just Uh, and then i saw that boot covered in ash and um what could i do i just started weeping it just it just struck home you know and um
2: yes i just got chills when you were saying that
3: yeah and i would talk i remember talking to a policeman um and um Oh God, these stories are so bizarre. He, um, I said, um, have you been down there? He said, yes, I've been down there and my friends are, you know, fellow cops are down there. And I said, well, what do they, what do they tell you? And he said, they, I've heard terrible stories. And, and then he said this, the story I've never forgotten. He said, there's a cop down, a friend of mine. He's, he's, he's completely rattled. And I said, what happened? He said, he saw one of the guys jumping out of the World Trade Center, you know, rather than burn. Mm-hmm. Some of them jumped, as we all know. And mm-hmm. then he said, and he locked eyes with him. <gasps> oh, my God. Uh-huh. I, I I, just talk about chills. And
2: uh-huh. those
3: guys that were down there seeing those kinds of things. Um, yes, I
2: think that that was one of the worst parts of it, um, the people who jumped. I mean, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to know what we would do. I don't know what I would do in that circumstance. It probably would be too... I mean, I don't know. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, seeing... And then the couple, there was at least one couple who held hands and yeah, jumped. Yeah, I saw that. I mean, oh, what could be sadder than that and more poignant than that?
3: Well, yeah, there was... There's one kind of interesting thing I saw, I think this was in the paper, but um, I don't know how many people saw this. There was a store down there, a jeans store, that was sort of in the position of being in a funnel-like um, area where a lot of the soot and debris just kind of crashed through and went right into the store. Um, the store didn't burn or anything, it just got a, a like a tornado amount of, and so everything was covered in ash, just like pompeii and so what the owner did was he spent like three weeks cleaning up he he said it took him immense amount of time to do it but he left one section completely covered in ash Mm. and he put fiberglass around it so that you could come in and see it and it really it looked you felt that day when you went in and saw it Mm. Um, it was amazing absolutely amazing
2: well, you know, that brings up something I wanted to ask you about. Um, one of the things, as a psychiatrist, one of the things that has bothered me and that I write about in the book is that, and, and just recently talked about the other day on a panel for a movie about uh, survival, well, these, these three families um, who had lost people in terrorist attacks, or, or two of them did, and one of them himself was injured. But in any case one of the most frustrating things for me is how people want to even, you know, interestingly, now it's the 10th anniversary and we see there are certain things, you know, you hear about like this morning I was hearing about uh, how the cartoonists were going to be um, doing cartoons to honor 9-11 on 9-11 and, or that week. If it's just weekend cartoons um, and yet, there isn't really now granted there's been the the hurricane hurricane irene and all that but still there isn't the kind of i mean it's actually it's in 2 weeks and there isn't the kind of build up that one might have expected for the 10th anniversary and what's frustrating to me is how people are still in such denial about the impact that this day has had on their lives, is still having on their lives, that that people want to just sweep it under the rug, or and want to pretend that we're never going to be attacked again, and um, and and don't want to do anything to prepare themselves for the, for for living under the stress of terrorism, for coping with these memories. Um, for, you know, for, for dealing with the whole issue altogether. And, and so that's really interesting that you said that this uh, man made a kind of memorial, in a sense. You know, we should never forget that day.
3: Yeah, it's funny. Um, I remember at the time uh, talking to some friends of mine, and... Um, I said, um, "Have you been down there to this?" They were New York. They're New Yorkers. I said, "Have you been down there?" And I remember that there was a couple, and the woman said, "No, and I never will." Mm. And I thought to myself, "What do you mean, you never will? Uh, um, I mean, don't you want to see what happened to your city and and face it?" And and so um, I think that they weren't alone, by the way. I'll bet you that there were, I, it would be interesting if we could know how many New Yorkers never went down there. Yes. I'm sure they can go down there now because there isn't anything left from what it was.
1: But.
2: Yes, yes, that would be interesting. Well, you know, a similar story, um, I met someone not long ago who um, was had moved into an apartment building um, not far from Ground Zero, and I asked her if um, that bothered her. Like I think her window looked in that direction, and it, and and I asked her if that was painful or difficult or emotional to be, you know, looking out on, on Ground Zero, and she looked at me like I was nuts because her re- psychological defense was um, to pretend that that wasn't anything. Um, you know, she wasn't even sort of, she was pretending it wasn't anything, like it mm. wasn't even something to be, it didn't have any significance because she couldn't even face what significance it had.
3: Hmm. Well, I don't so, know.
2: I mean, we all have, you know, our mind makes these defenses to try to help us cope, but at the same time, um, this isn't the healthiest way to be coping, to pretend that this didn't exist for many reasons. Well, we probably uh, should be taking another break now, um, because I, I want to. Uh, I want to. I don't want to interrupt you. <laughs> um, but I, okay. my guest is Richard Goodman. I, I let me just uh, t- give some other information about my guest. Um, besides having written other books, he's also written for the New York Times, the Harvard Review, uh, Creative Nonfiction, Commonweal, Van- Vanity Fair the writer's chronicle, the louisville review, Savor, x ascent and the michigan quarterly review as well as teaching writing in new york for many years um, including being a founders founding member of the new york writers workshop so um so this is you know <laughs> this wasn't a uh, this wasn't just a um a whim Well, actually, I I want I want to ask you about that when you decided to turn these the diary into a book. So um, I don't know if the I don't hear the music yet for the break. Oh, there it comes. (laughs) Okay, maybe it's because I'm deaf. Um, My guest today is Richard Goodman. Again, his book is called The Bicycle Diaries: One New Yorker's Journey Through 9/11. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
0: Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787.
3: Thank you
4: for calling.
0: VoiceAmerica.com.
2: His new book, about to appear, is called "The Bicycle Diaries: One New Yorker's Journey Through 9/11." And Richard, I want to ask you: You wrote these the diary as you were taking these bicycle trips right after 9/11 for three months. You said, and you had these notes, and you you emailed them, I guess, to um, to your friends or to people all over the states, right? Um, and and at what point did you think about putting these together in a book?
3: Well, the, the first thing was when I was writing them, most of them I felt this amazing kind of electricity inside of me, the, the connection between the subject and the writing. And I don't mean to make this sound mystical. It's just that when you write, sometimes you're, you feel very close to your subject and other times not as close. But in this case, I did. And people seemed to respond to that and they said oh this is really good and you know aside from learning about what happened so eventually when I finished um, I don't know I think I might have had a hundred and sixty pages typed, uh, or something like that I tried to get uh, you know people said you want to see if you can get this published well I tried and I uh, didn't succeed no one was really interested which was fine actually because um, I felt that the the writing had done its purpose and had connected people to New York, and it helped me to, when I was writing about it, to try to make Mm -hmm. sense of of things as much as I I could. And then about five years after that, 19, I guess that would have been 2005 or 6, I interviewed a a guy named Gaylord Shanalek, who is um, an amazing artist. He's a woodcut word engraver um, who makes these beautiful woodcuts and he also, he's a fine press artist, which means he prints by hand with um, individual type books and makes limited editions. So he prints them and, and illustrates them. Well, one of the books he had done was on New York, and I saw these woodcuts of Times Square and the Puck Building, and I thought I'd never seen anything like this, woodcuts that just make the city so alive, so I asked him if he would be interested and thus commenced about a three year wooing of Gaylord. He he's <laughs> <laughs> very particular about what kinds of books he, he does.
2: Huh.
3: He he finally said, Yes, well it takes him a year at least to do a book and sometimes two. Hmm. Um, so after a while he, he finally agreed. He was reluctant in a way because it was normally his books aren't really text heavy. They're not they're probably under 50 pages, or maybe, or something like that. But he finally said yes, and it's just being finished now. It's at the bindery. Um, Ten years later.
2: Wow. Well, you know, it, boy, and so so it's going. Do you have a specific? Is it going to come out exactly on
3: 9/11? No, it's not. I mean, Gaylord is. Um, a very meticulous artist. He had planned to actually have the books done in May, but he had some problems with uh, woodcuts and with the printing and with the paper and with the type, and he's someone that if there's a problem, he's not going to rush it. And so he um, had to resolve all these things, and now what's happening is there are a few copies that he's bound, but it looks like the book won't be ready until October in, you know, fully the 250 copies he's, He's doing by hand, and um, uh, you know that's just the way it is. He he knows that he wants this book to be for all time, so mm-hmm. he wasn't yes. to rush it. Yes,
2: yes, um, yes. There's going to be life after the 10th anniversary. Um, so, how did you decide on? There are going to be only 250 books, and they're going to be $300 each. How did you decide on all of that?
3: Well, that's really Gaylord's decision. It's a matter of, um, you know, he's done these kind of fine press books before, and I guess he understands how many he can print, he can make, and then he has to recoup his uh, investment because a lot of times he has to put out the money ahead of time. He buys the uh, the type ahead of time, and uh, the artist, uh, rather the type maker, sort of gives it to him on credit, so... He has to figure out how much money he has to charge for each book and how many he thinks he can sell and yet still keep in that limited edition range because collectors buy his books and collectors don't want to buy a book Mm -hmm. that, you know, 10,000 people can buy. Well,
2: I have a suggestion. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. I have a suggestion, though. I think when this comes out... Other than the fact that people are are still in denial to some degree, but still, the artistic value is well, literary art, artistry as well as visual artistry. Um, I think there will be a desire for more than three hundred. And at, when it, when it does come out, when you have, I, I think you might want to take that to publishers to make um, to make a more um, accessible, a more reproducible. Version of it um, that you know that that more people could have. I mean, obviously, maybe museums and so on would want it, and collectors, as you said. Um, but I think you know, I think that I think that your um, the way that you did this. It, it kind of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning about the childlike aspect of being on a bicycle. You know that it takes some of the um, some of the horror. I mean, I know that you, you know, you tell about what you saw and so on, but it's kind of a more palatable way that people can digest it. You know, it kind of makes me think of um,
3: the red balloon. <laughs> huh. Well, you know, I, I would love for it to be available to a wider audience. And the fact is that Gaylord's illustrations, I think he has maybe eight woodcuts that he's, or wood, he calls them wood carvings. Um, that are um, illustri- illustrate the book he, they could be reproduced either digitally or on film and the, and the type could be re- it would be a beautiful book um, uh, even in reproduction and I mm-hmm. would love that and um, if there are any publishers listening
2: yes uh... absolutely well you know there is going to be a tipping point there's going to have to be a tipping point because uh, I mean, I hate to say this, but um, even with even with Osama dead and now the second in command dead and all of that and and um, people in power would have us some people would have us believe that uh, the threat is over. This is a long term threat it isn 't over no matter how many people uh, at the top are going to be killed and in fact, of course recently we 've been hearing about um, and, and I mean this isn 't just recently, but um, that that there 's a lot to be worried about in regard to lone wolves that it 's not just a, something coming from the top so it 's not going away, and um, what I talk about is various solutions that that uh, people things that people need to put in place in their life to um, one uh, cope with the the memory, you know, the memories of nine eleven, and your book would be a great one. Actually, we have to coordinate this, <laughs> you know, taking it in this palatable red balloon way, um, and and of course the other is making themselves physically and psychologically stronger. I, I um, relate it to being as if you were running a marathon. That before people run a marathon, they get themselves, they take vitamins, they get lots of sleep, they they exercise you know, and so on, and I talk about different exercises, spiritual exercises and and um, relaxation exercises and all kinds of things as well as as well as um, you know taking walks and lifting weights but um, but we have to get ourselves in a totally different frame of mind in order to withstand the next years of, of continuing to live under this threat, no less um, the actual attacks that do get through.
3: Hmm. Well, it's funny, um, you know, after, after 9-11, everybody was very skittish. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you remember hearing planes go overhead and just sort of flinching. And, um yes. but then at a certain point, at least for me, um, you know, being a New Yorker, I thought it just came to me that this city is um, always going to be a target, and um, we've been very lucky since then. We've had some near misses with that guy in Times Square. Yes. But, but you know, um, I'm not, it's not, I'll never not go to Grand Central Station. I'll never not go to Penn Station. I'll never not go take the subway. Um, I'm going to, you know, I'm actually in New Orleans now as a visiting professor, but um, I would never change my lifestyle, in, 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 you know, out of fear.
2: No, and I don't recommend that people do that. But when we don't acknowledge what we're afraid of or we don't acknowledge the lingering effects of 9-11, it is still affecting us. I use, as a, a you know, a really simple example to see this epidemic of, Obesity that we have in our country, do you not see the connection between nine eleven and and that we're all sort of needing i mean right after nine eleven there was an increase in the um uh consuming of comfort foods which hasn't really stopped you know there was special there was um a special increase in things like um you know uh mashed potatoes or um ice cream or things from childhood that we remember consciously or unconsciously as being associated with comfort. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you'd bruise your knee and you'd get to have ice cream or a cupcake, a chocolate cupcake, or, or birthday parties with these different kinds of things. And sure enough, um, ten years later, our country keeps getting fatter and fatter.
3: Well, I never thought of that. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean that's just an example of of you know these unconscious things that are still affecting us. And so yes, I agree we shouldn't stop going to the different places and we shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't um, we shouldn't cover ourselves and stay in bed hiding under the covers, but we do need to dispel the things that are affecting us from being as productive and as happy in our lives as we were before 9/11. And this is a good time to take a break. My guest is Richard Goodman. His book, his fantastic book that I will, in the next uh, segment, will t- talk to you about how you can get it, one for yourself. It's called The Bicycle Diaries, One New Yorker's Journey Through 9-11. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
0: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah.
1: Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times, www.drcarol.com.
4: Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking.
0: the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
1: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at one 472 5788 Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, with my guest today, Richard Goodman, who it, whose book is about to come out. It's called The Bicycle Diaries, One New Yorker's Journey Through 9-11. Before we tell you about how you uh, might get a copy of that, um, I just wanted to ask you, Richard, about your other book about New York. It's called A New York Memoir that was published in t- 2010. So tell us about that.
3: Well that is um a series of essays about um my living in New York for the 30 years uh, I've been there and um it starts when I was a young man and I came to New York and wide-eyed and uh, looking for um, finding my way trying to find myself and all that and in fact I did and New York turned out to be for me at least the, the most wonderful uh, place I could have imagined landed uh, in And then the essays talk about the people I meet. There's um, an essay about an older woman I used to visit as part of a program in in Greenwich Village called uh, Village Visiting Neighbors. Hmm. She was in her 70s and a really wonderful woman. Who There's so many of these in New York City who maybe come here when they were young to try to be an actress, and it sort of worked out, but not really, but they stayed, and Hmm. she was wonderful. And there's an essay um there's a
2: lot of those in l a too <laughs> are there
3: yeah mm-hmm. yeah, um but I used to visit her and she it was just a wonderful um woman and um uh, there's essays about um uh, growing older here uh, about my daughter um, I got married here uh, my daughter was born there and and divorced there um, and then what happens I found is that I got older, you know, I start I was writing essays that looked back on the mm. time when I first came to New York. So in other words, there are actually essays later in the book in which I reflect on that guy who's at the beginning of the book, which is mm. really an interesting thing to do as a writer. You only get to do it once. <laughs> but um so the and then well, the Well, I
2: don't know, from, maybe when you get older you look back on this day. It may
3: be. Maybe. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Um so it's uh, it's uh an amalgam, and one of the essays at the beginning is called Why I Live in New York City, and that is really a response to uh, people when I travel around and give workshops or whatever. A lot of times they'll say, well, where are you from? And I'll say New York City, and they always, well, most of the time, you know, it's how can you live there? I mean, I like to visit, but I mean, yeah, yeah. And so hmm. I got so tired of this, I finally wrote an essay, which is in the second person, and just... Talks about the power of the city and what it gave to me, what I got from it, and and, and what it is about it that draws so many people there. Um, well,
2: I must say, I always say that um, that I was so happy to have been born and raised in New York because when you learn as a little child to to um, you know you have to sort of. <laughs> You have to be scrappy to get anywhere in New York. And, um, and that sort of teaches you how to, how to overcome various obstacles and it makes, uh, makes living in other parts of the world a lot easier.
3: Yeah, you get your street smarts and you, you, um, learn how to contend, contend.
2: Yes, exactly. So tell us about where can we, well, where can we get either of these books?
3: Well, um, should I start with the Bicycle Diaries? Or? Sure. Okay. The Bicycle Diaries, um, y- y- you can get through Gaylord Shanilek, who is the artist. And his um, company is called Midnight Paper Sales. And you can go to his website, which is www.midnightpapersales.alloneword.com, all one word, .com. Um, or you can Google Gaylord Shanilek, which is spelled S C H A N. E-L-I-C, and um, he has a place on his website, which is his store, and you just click on it, and um, you can order the book, and when he gets the copies and they're bound, he'll send them to you as he usually does in this beautifully wrapped, tightly wrapped package so that nothing could possibly damage this book. Hmm. And um, you can do it that way. Um, A New York memoir you can get on Amazon and that's probably the best place to get it because um, it's cheaper on Amazon than the uh, publisher's price. Well, now, I want to give out
2: your website also, which is very interesting for people to go to, richardgoodman.org, and that's Richard the normal way, Goodman, G-O-O-D-M-A-N, richardgoodman.org, and uh, you can read about uh, more about him and about his other books. Um, Now, are you going to be... I, I don't remember. I didn't see whether, can you, uh let's see, you, can, you can't get any of your books from your website?
3: Um, well, yeah, sure, there's a link from uh, the books to Amazon. Uh-huh. So French Dirt is on there, and you can click on it, it'll take you to Amazon. A New York Memoir will take you to Amazon, and The Soul of Creative Writing also will take you there. Um I don't sell them myself, uh, except when I go to work, to do workshops, but
2: mm-hmm. they'll
3: all lead you to Amazon. All roads lead to Amazon, don't they? <laughs>
2: uh, yes. <laughs> but you should have, um, what I do, well, what I've done for my most recent book, Bad Girls, Why Men Love Them and How Good Girls Can Learn Their Secrets. Um, I have a website for that. And, uh, I have, people, of course, can get it from Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever, but um, but if they want autographed books, they can get it from my website. Oh. So you should do that, too, because well, somebody might talk. want <laughs> what? what did you? I think? never
3: thought of that, but um, uh, it sounds like a great idea.
2: Yes, a lot of, especially, it seems to be more these days, people like to have autographed books, and they're happy to pay the difference between what that would be and what it would be on Amazon. Uh-huh. Um, to have your autograph. Okay. Well, I should because say that. These um, things are going to be worth that's... a lot of money in the future.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I should say, by the way, that um, in the Bicycle Diaries, it, it's it's these it's it's a limited edition, and like a lithograph or an etching, which is always signed by the artist and says, you know, number ten out of thirty copies, ten slash thirty. Yes. The same with the Bicycle Diaries. Each copy is signed by me and also by Gaylord Chanilec. And it tells you what number it is out of the total number, the same thing. And that's in the back of the book.
2: Oh, that's very, very cool. Well, I want to give the information again. Um, the, for that, for the bicycle diaries, the best play, way to get them then is to go to midnightpapersales.com. And that's midnightpapersales, S-A-L-E-S, dot com. And, um, and again, richardgoodman.org just for more information about Richard and his many books. Um, And do you have any, what are you going to be doing this September 11th?
3: Well, you know, I'm going to be here in New Orleans where I'm teaching for a year. Um, I'll certainly be thinking about 9-11, that's for sure. Um, I'll be back in New York for a a book party for, for the Bicycle Diaries, but that won't be until October 20th, so... Um, I'm sure I'll be doing uh, some reflecting about it um, in my own way.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yes, well, may I suggest to my listeners that you all, regardless of where you're physically going to be, um, if you can go to New York and go to visit the site if you haven't done that yet the site of the Twin Towers I certainly recommend that you do that there is nothing like that to to uh to give you the sense of the day and and um the sense of what happened and and um how we need to each do work on ourselves to uh to process that and to be stronger for the future but even if you if you can't go to New York or if you can't go to some um, unveiling of something, some memorial, something in your town, then I would recommend that everyone take some time to themselves, plans in advance, to take some time to be alone and think about uh, how wonderful this country is, and what to think about what may be still holding you back, what impact, you know, whether you want to call it post-traumatic stress disorder. Or as I call it, terrorist stress syndrome. Uh, try to think about what things may, how that may have impacted your life, and what you need to to still recover from, and how you can help this country um, so that it gets stronger, as well as you individually getting stronger. So I'd like to thank my guest, Richard Goodman. Thank you so much. I think this is a fabulous book. Again, the name of the book is called The Bicycle Diaries: One New Yorker's Journey Through 9/11. Well, thank you, and I, I look forward to this. And I, um, It is something that would be really wonderful for people to read. So thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
1: Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.